0: Hello and welcome. This is the UC Santa Cruz News Roundup Podcast where we talk about the latest news and research from UC Santa Cruz. Today we're going to go over a few news items from the past couple of weeks. I'm Gwen Jordanet and I'm an editor for UC Santa Cruz News.
1: And I'm Dan White and I'm a writer for UC Santa Cruz News.
0: And as I said, we're going to talk about the recent news from UC Santa Cruz, all of which you can find at news.ucsc.edu. our yeah. fabulous news center that has all the stories you could ever dream of. But uh, for right now, we are going to dive in. All right. So, Dan, I have some kitty news, one of my favorite animals of all time, kitties. But, yes. But um, this is the, the big variety of kitties that we're talking about here.
1: Well, like a... Like the Siamese?
0: <laughs> like
1: Lhasa like, Apso? I guess like, that's a dog, Lhasa like Apso. Yeah, the <laughs> no, Maine Coon. No, bigger
0: than a Maine Coon. Um, all right, so we're going to start off um, talking about something else to get to the kitty part. Oh, okay. Santa Cruz, Understood. as you know, is well known for its fog. Have you ever been standing out on the cliff looking at the waves and being like, oh my God, it could not get colder right now?
1: Well, let me put it this way. I have heard that Santa Cruz is pretty. I mean, I've never really seen it because it's <laughs> always covered with fog.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: People tell me it's yeah. nice. I get postcards mm-hmm. telling me my own hometown is oh. just lovely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I guess I, I not uh, we'll know. know. Slathered <laughs> with pea soup well, fog so all the guess, time. Guess what? Uh, it turns out that marine fog brings more than cooler temperatures and... Shivering surfers to coastal areas. Um, Researchers here at UC Santa Cruz have discovered elevated levels of mercury in mountain lions. The latest indication that the neurotoxin mercury is being carried in fog, deposited on the land and making its way up the food chain. It sounds like a Stephen King
1: Novella. It's that's that's just so horrible. Did you breathe in the fog and then it just you get the the chemical goo in there? That's I terrible. Know. It does sound like a Stephen King book. I think miniseries. There's a, I think
0: there is a Stephen no. King short story about deadly fog. But anyway,
1: the Stephen King thing—the whole thing would be about like just what would happen to you if you just went up to a mountain lion, tried to get the blood sample. I think that is the story right there. What would be done to one's right. body?
0: And maybe you're like a killer clown. I don't know. Um, All right, so concentrations of mercury in pumas in the Santa Cruz Mountains were three times higher than pumas who live outside the fog zone, those lucky ducks, I mean mean pumas.
1: Get the views Um, too, yeah.
0: (laughs) Similarly, mercury levels in lichen and deer were significantly higher inside the fog belt than beyond it.
1: So that's crazy story. How bad is this? I mean, I'm just wondering... Is this fog possibly affecting like, the long-term health and survival of the species for these creatures? Yeah,
0: exactly. It's, it's interesting you ask that because mercury levels found in pumas are, are approaching toxic thresholds that could jeopardize reproduction and even survival, according to the researchers. Oh. So uh, led by Peter Weiss-Penzias, an environmental toxicologist who has pi- pioneered the study of pollutants in coastal fog... The study is the first to trace the fog-based source of mercury in the food chain up to a top predator. Lichen don't have any roots, so the methyl mercury, the most toxic form of mercury found in lichen, must come from the atmosphere, says weiss And just like with fish who eat smaller fish and they are eaten by bigger fish and so on and so on, mercury becomes increasingly concentrated in animals higher up the food chain. So... Not to worry about humans, because humans are not at risk for mercury in fog, but the risk to land mammals may be significant. With each step up mm. the food chain, from lichen to deer to mountain lions, mercury concentrations can increase by at least 1,000 times. Can you believe that? That
1: is unbelievable. Um, wondering, however, if scientists have actually pinpointed a case where there's a puma that has had that level of toxicity yeah, in its bloodstream.
0: Exactly, they have. At least one puma studied had mercury levels known to be toxic to certain other species, and two others had sublethal levels that reduce fertility and reproductive success.
1: Wow, so you have these the lichen that's absorbing this stuff and the deer eats it and then the mm-hmm. pumas eat the deer. So what the deer would say is you wouldn't be having this problem if you'd stop eating us. <laughs> right? <laughs> So, just stop killing and eating us, and everything yeah. will be fine for our long term well, health and yours, right? Except for that. Go veg. The,
0: the poor pumas would be starving.
1: Well, <laughs> if they became vegetarians but then didn't eat lichen. Yeah. Oh, Lichenarians. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I, right. I, I know that wouldn't work for them. Yeah. Tofu. <laughs> <Okay>. Tofu
0: to beast. <laughs> <laughs> um so mercury is a naturally occurring element that is released into the environment through a variety of natural processes and human activities including mining and coal-fired power plants as atmospheric mercury rains down on oceans here's how it happens it's converted by bacteria in deep waters to methyl mercury which as i said is the most toxic form of mercury and then upwelling brings some methylmercury to the surface where it's released back into the atmosphere and carried by fog. At high concentrations, methylmercury can cause neurological damage, including memory loss and reduced motor, motor coordination, and it can re- decrease the, via- the viability of offspring. We need to protect the top predators in the environment, says Weiss Penzius. They're keystone species. They perform ecosystem services. When you change one thing, like you want to do, Dan...
1: Absolutely. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> it has cascading effects through the system. So that's the problem.
1: Yeah. I may have to rethink my strategy. I know. Okay. It's that Exactly. Okay.
0: So this, this finding should be important as we make and refine policies to protect humans and the environment from mercury.
1: Hope they figure something out.
0: I know. Me too. Okay. So let's move on. Have you ever heard of the concept of deficit thinking? Never. Never. Okay. Never.
1: In terms of the, the uh, national, the, the, the economy, sure, but not in terms of indiv- individual <laughs> like psychology.
0: Yeah. Uh, We're always doing sense. deficit thinking. I know. Yeah. It's something that's come up lately, and it's a phenomenon that we need to push back against. Here's an example that one of our students experienced. John Lee Cardenas, a Merrill uh, psychology and Latin American and Latinx studies student, began elementary school speaking only Spanish. After all Spanish-speaking pre-K and kindergarten, then she went into first grade and it was English only. And she sat separate from the other students. It was a really big transition for her and she felt isolated.
1: I'm wondering how that affected her whole experience at the school.
0: I know. So the situation affected how her teachers and fellow students saw her, she, mm-hmm. she says, and how she interacted with them. She felt like she was seen not as, you know, just another six-year-old learning her first grade lessons in a new language, but as someone who was inherently less capable. So that story is how Cardenas explains the concept of deficit thinking. The term refers to the presumption that performance challenges arise from innate weaknesses rather Mm -hmm. than circumstances. Yeah, yeah, it's the subject of her undergraduate research and Professor Rebecca Coverubias's Culture and Achievement Collaborative, or the, as they call it, collab. Cardenas is exploring how these challenges affect interactions between undergraduate tutors and their students, and she's pushing us to think more critically about meaningful ways to better serve and conduct research in collaboration with low-income, first-generation students of color, Kovarubias's. Cover- Covarubius says. Yes. Cardenas hopes her research might influence tutors and others in teaching roles to be aware of their perceptions and find ways to adapt to the circumstances of their students. And um, there's a great podcast on our website in the News Center in this story that uh, our colleague J.D. Hillard made. So I encourage you to go listen to it because it's, it's really great. You get to hear Cardenas' voice and it's just really, really interesting and you'd find out more about our research. Yeah. And she plans to work toward a PhD and seek a professorship, combining her current dual majors to examine how identity affects mental health and overall well-being.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating and also really sad that people would make these presumptions about someone's capability based on uh, their proficiency in a second language in a classroom. And I just wonder, because when you live abroad, that completely skews that sort of prejudice. I lived in Spain for six months, Mm -hmm. and when people would see how I would struggle with their language, I mean, it really is eye-opening. And you see how hard it is to take classes, to do intensive study. In a classroom setting, in another language, and it just changes your, it makes you a lot more accepting of, you know, understanding it's hard to do I'm that. sure, yeah. yeah.
0: My gosh, I can't imagine. It
1: broadens your perspective. That's yeah, for sure. yeah, yeah,
0: definitely. Yep. Okay, and uh, on to our next story, I want to talk about something new on campus. UC Santa Cruz has established a new Center for the Middle East and North Africa that will focus on the culture, history, and politics of the region. The center is designed to be a hub for faculty, students, and the wider community to research and study an array of subjects that span thousands of years and are of critical importance today, such as current migration policies.
1: I like the idea of a hub. I mean, how exactly are they going to make this work as a hub? How are they going to be doing this?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, So what they'll do is they'll bring scholars, artists, and policymakers from around the world Mm for seminars and they'll have conferences and they'll produce all kinds of different events for public, yes. for the public. Um, so that's how they'll do it. The Center for the Middle East and North Africa is gonna be directed by UC Santa Cruz Associate Professor of History, Jennifer Durr, who um, recently, uh, this past summer, received a, uh, a National Science Foundation Faculty Early Career Award, really prestigious one. So um, it's fantastic. And as it turns out, we, our campus already has exceptional faculty strength in the study of North Africa, a field that bridges Africa, Europe, and the Middle East, um, according to Tyler Stovall, our Dean of Humanities. In this field, he says, we're one of the strongest universities in America, and the new center will further highlight our prominence here. So this is a, a really great development, um, and I'm really excited to see what happens. The establishment of the center represents the culmination of work by faculty in a bunch of different um, disciplines, humanities, social sciences, and the arts division. In 2014, faculty in these divisions began to organize in response to student demand to discuss the possibility of hiring an Arabic language instructor um, here at the university. In addition to the support of faculty in various divisions, the campaign had the full support of the Jewish Studies program. Um, And also, UCSC's Humanities Division recently received a $370,000 gift from Mary Ecke and Jeff Rothschild to fund building block resources for three years of language instruction on campus in Arabic and Persian, as well as seed money to begin developing this center. The inaugural event for the center is scheduled for February 4th at the Kumba downtown as part of the Humanities Institute's Questions That Matter series, and the event will feature Durr in conversation with two NPR journalists, Hannah Alam and Leila Fadl, who have worked extensively in the Middle East, including in Iraq in the aftermath of the U.S. invasion, and are currently reporting on questions of culture, race, and diversity in the United States. So that should be a cool event and an interesting one to kick off this new center, which should just start producing amazing research and discoveries.
1: What a great new addition.
0: Yeah, I love it. Okay, uh, that's it for me. So what's on your news radar, Dan?
1: Well, I do have some natural uh, history news to share with you, Gwent. Now, tech workers, it seems, are not the only ones who've been colonizing the San Francisco area. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, According to a news report, California sea otters appear to be on the verge of recon recolonizing San Francisco Bay with projections that their populations could triple, more than triple, really. Currently, there are about 3,000 individuals of the species known as Southern Sea Otters, but those numbers are projected to go up to 10,000 individuals at least, and they could Mm -hmm. achieve this goal by repopulating the largest estuary on the coast, the San Francisco Bay. I had no idea that that's a glorified estuary. No idea.
0: I, I didn't know there were otters in there.
1: I had no idea either. Uh, it would essentially end up lifting the sea otter out of its endangered species status, said Brent Hughes, assistant professor of biology at Sonoma State and lead author of the uh, study published in Peer J, the Journal of Life and Environmental Sciences for the Conservation of the Sea Otter. This would be huge. So, uh,
0: yeah, so this is all fascinating, but um, what's how are we conne- connected to it? How is he, What's the UC Santa Cruz connection?
1: Yeah, actually... Uh, Brent Hughes, the lead author I just mentioned, did pioneering research on the ecological role of sea Otters in oh. Elkhorn Slough as a graduate student at okay. UC Santa Cruz. If you all know Elkhorn Slough, it's off yeah. kind of near where the Moss Landing Power Plant is, kind of near Phil's sea market, the food market. Mm,
0: it's really uh, pretty. You can really around beautiful. Around it's, and, yeah.
1: it's wonderful. You mm-hmm. could take out a kayak and see seals and sea otters. Yeah. And he worked with Tim Tinker and Kirsten Wasson, both co-authors of the new paper and adjunct professors of ecology and evolutionary biology at UC Santa Cruz. Now uh, Elkhorn Slough is protected. Habitats provide a special haven for sea otters as well as remarkable opportunities for studying them, said Wasson, who is a research coordinator for the Elkhorn Slough National Estuarine Research Reserve. Sea otters were associated with kelp forests only because the surviving southern sea otters off of Big Sur were in that habitat. So if you go back in history, mm-hmm. you'd be just as likely to think of otters as salt marsh and seagrass animals. Mm-hmm. And indeed, there used to be more in San Francisco Bay than the entire Southern population sizes now.
0: Wow, yeah, I mean, it didn't uh, weren't southern sea otters pretty much almost wiped out? Before? That is
1: true. The southern sea otter actually was widely believed to be extinct due to the wow. expensive fur trade of the 18th and 19th and centuries. It's it's, as you know, the the their pelts are really really warm, mm-hmm. uh, which reduced the global population from 150,000 and 300,000 to a pretty measly 2,000 oh. global population. Mm-hmm. Then there was an amazing thing. In 1914, a remnant population of about 50 southern sea otters was found along the rugged Big, Shore, Big Sur shoreline near where you see some of those amazing bridges now when you do the Big Sur trip. Mm-hmm. Thanks to conservation efforts, the population has since ballooned to more than uh, 3,000, but their numbers are still far, far below their historic numbers in range. Really? <laughs> and uh, while conservation efforts have focused on protecting otters in those rocky dramatic coastal habitats, evidence shows that southern sea otters were once very plentiful in California estuaries, including in San Francisco Bay. Now, the only estuary in California that is currently home to a distinct and self-sustaining population of sea otters is Elkhorn Slough. Mm -hmm. Now, overall, southern sea otters have only recolonized about 13% of their historic range, according to the study. Hugh said, "One of the, this is really interesting mm. and a little scary." Hugh said, "One of the reasons otter habitat has remained so fragmented and why sea otters have not been able to migrate north and reestablish residency in San Francisco Bay is the presence of hungry great <laughs> white <laughs> sharks near the Golden Gate." Oh dear! And then we call it the Gantlet or the Gauntlet," he said. Mm-hmm. Uh, otters really can't get past the gauntlet. I mean, I don't think anybody could, you know, outswim a great white shark. (laughs) But if otter populations were established inside San Francisco Bay, out of shark range, right, out of range of great whites, they could become the top predator and would likely thrive. Now, I think that's kind of charming and hilarious that something that's not competing with a great white shark would then be the top predator. But to have that be an (laughs) otter, I'd rather get (laughs) bitten by an otter than a great white shark, let me tell you right now. Yeah, that's for sure. All right, so transitioning effortlessly from slippery mammal to slippery mammal to slippery slug. Now there's a program called Slug Support at UC Santa Cruz that just got a wonderful influx of much-needed fundraising. People stepped up to support the Slug Support. Now let me just try to explain what we're talking about here. Slug Support is a campus program that pinpoints students who may be in need of encouragement, a helping hand with problems with involving hunger and food access, and connects them with these valuable resources slug support reaches out to those students and in the process it improves graduation retention rates Mm -hmm. it's an essential part of the campus's basic needs program now slug support also runs a pantry featuring fresh produce straight from the campus farm you see santa cruz's first campus-wide giving tuesday fundraiser on december 3rd was really a boost for this program with hundreds of donors stepping in to help At the close of this pretty madcap and wild 24-hour online event, I don't know if it was that madcap, but it was pretty wild, (laughs) 447 contributors had given a combined $49,000. The result is almost double Slug Support's fundraising in all of the 2018-2019 fiscal year, said Mariah Lyons, the program's director. We are thrilled with the generosity and with the number of donors, Lyons said. It's going to mean a lot for students who need ongoing food support.
0: How many uh, How many people were you talking about? Like, how widespread is this problem with hunger on campus?
1: Actually, the uh, hunger in college campuses is a growing concern across the whole United States, including the UC mm. system. An estimated 40% of UC students face some degree of food insecurity, oh, which is humbling when you think it's one of the most highly regarded uh, university systems in the world, and you've got this problem. Yeah. Now, the program uh here uh, on campus will use the fund for its food assistance offerings including grocery store gift cards for those facing short-term challenges meal swipes for the dining halls direct financial awards food pantries anyhow i'm thrilled by this news and it's uh, very very important and uh and i'm hoping that this has a very broad positive impact yeah for students in need and uh in other news, highlighting students, uh, a team of UC Santa Cruz computer science students has won sponsorship from Amazon to develop a social bot no. <laughs> that can chit-chat <laughs> with human beings. It's really interesting because people are always telling us how our devices are making us antisocial by having us hide out in our house and ordering carrots or doing whatever we do, mm-hmm. ordering groceries and games. But this, this is an effort to make the devices More social, So that's kind of a nice flip. This is very exciting because hundreds of applicants competed for this honor, but this group of high-tech slugs rose to the top to compete in the uh, Alexa Prize Social Bot Grand Challenge 3. And the challenge is designed to advance the field of conversational artificial intelligence. I guess it's kind of the same same kind of tech that teaches Siri how to respond if you insult her or tell her to recite the lyrics to Bohemian Rhapsody you know, but much more sophisticated than that. The chosen team submitted applications that demonstrate a contribution to the scientific field, strong technical merit, and novel ideas to address the challenges of conversational AI. Mm -hmm. It's really humbling to think of what these applications were like. I probably couldn't even understand the content of half of them. Now, the UCSC team is named Athena. It's led by faculty advisor Marilyn Walker, a professor of computer science and engineering, and includes six graduate students and one undergrad. One undergrad, one high-achieving undergrad. Wow, what a great
0: opportunity. I
1: know, incredible. What a boost when you're still still an undergrad. All working in Walker's Natural Language and Dialogue Systems Lab at UC Santa Cruz. Each team receives, that's amazing, $250,000 research grant. That's big. Alexa-enabled devices, free Amazon Web Services to support their efforts, and access to other tools, as well as Alexa team support straight from the top.
0: So what exactly do they need to do to win?
1: Oh, it's going to be hard, Gwen. These these teams face a really interesting grand challenge. They've got to come up with a smooth-talking social bot that can have a, get this, coherent conversation with a flesh-and-blood human being for 20 minutes using Alexa, the voice-controlled digital assistant who lives inside the Amazon Echo and other devices. That strikes me as hard, right, Gwen? Considering most human beings can't really have a coherent (laughs) conversation that lasts 20 20 minutes. minutes. Are you kidding? Especially not lately. Turn on the TV set. This social... I should probably keep it limited to that. The social bot should be able to engage people in conversations about popular topics such as entertainment and sports and politics, technology, fashion. I would ask it if I should see cats. Yeah. No, right? (laughs) That's what I (laughs) I hear. Creepy. Or the new Star Wars. That sounds kind of fun, the new Star Wars. It does. The Athena team includes several grad students who competed in previous years. As part of the uh, Slugbot team, as well as several new members. So go, Athena. Yeah. May you prosper in this com- this competition and will you bring home the gold or whatever it. it is. Yeah, do it, everybody.
0: Bring it. And, and uh, let's talk to some robots.
1: Athena, <laughs> let them win. You know how she has to say yes to everything.
0: <laughs> All right. So I think that's uh, that's our news for this time. And yeah. we've reached the end of the year. This is our last podcast of 2019.
1: And thank you for your listener support and the cards and letters and the stuffed animals and everything. Keep, I know. It, keep it coming. And
0: the, the you know, the, the the hundreds, I mean, sorry, the tens of you who listen. I
1: know, to, you, you really <laughs> care.
0: I mean, you just sustain us.
1: You sustain your... <laughs> us. And sometimes your enthusiasm <laughs> a little bit frightening. I mean, I do need a personal life. You don't need to show up at my house and ask about the podcast, but uh, just a word to the wise. But I... I uh, I really appreciate how enthusiastic you all are. We
0: do. We do. We love our fans. Yep. And,
1: uh, <laughs> gosh, the gift subscriptions really, and the chocolates um, have been really we just, nice.
0: We've had a great time yep. and we're going to continue it in 2020. Maybe we'll even expand our, into the double digits our skill sets <laughs> yeah. and what we're doing with yeah. this glorious podcast. Um, so we're looking forward to that. I'm and looking. We hope you'll come with us on the journey next year. Yeah. <clears throat> and I hope you have a great holiday, whatever you choose to do with it. Yes.
1: Exactly. Stay if in touch.
0: See family, see friends. Yeah. Um, you know, get outside a little bit. That'd be great.
1: Go sledding. We'll that's what I'm doing. Yeah. In uh, the Yosemite area, I'm gonna, my kid and I. That's great. We're gonna uh, actually my wife too. We're gonna take inner tube. <laughs> And uh, slide down the mountainside. No breaks. We'll be safe, please. I will try. All right. okay. okay, everyone. All right. Um,
0: so happy uh, new year. Happy new year. And new will year. see you in 2020 where we will continue the conversation. Maybe with a robot.
1: Yes. All right. Or maybe with all of you. Maybe, you know, all of you could conceivably stop by the recording studio and fit here. It would be like our fan appreciation day, right?
0: There you go. Yeah, there you go. All right.
1: With room to spare. Okay,
0: everyone. <laughs> we'll talk to but you But don't later. rub it in. Bye. Bye.